0: morning, Veritas Church. How we doing? This is fun. Okay, if you haven't figured this out, college students are back, y'all. Come on, Salt Company. Love it. If we haven't met, my name is Jordan. I am partial to uh, college students because I work with the Salt Company, our college ministry. So I uh, just want to say a quick thank you to, really, this church, this congregation. Thank you so much for praying for us, partnering with us in ministry, moving towards the next generation with the gospel. I know many of you have given faithfully, uh, financially, many of you have been praying on a consistent basis that God would be raising up laborers on our campus, and many of you helped stuff uh, tumbler mugs full of goodies to hand to college students. So if you are a college student and you are here today, uh, we actually have a gift for you right out these doors, don't leave yet, okay, uh, end of service there's a big banner that says The Salt Company, and we have a tumbler mug full of goodies. We'd love, to, we'd love to bless you this morning. So uh, for those of you that have been marching with us, we're actually in week three of three in our mission statement series. So uh, our, we know our mission statement. We just walked through it together to raise up mature disciples, send out everyday missionaries, and glorify God. And if you're anything like me, like these last two weeks have kind of made sense to you, like this idea of raising up mature disciples, like as we just look at the Bible, as we understand what it means to to know, love, and follow Jesus, we understand we're all in process. Like none of us have arrived. We're actually marked by this constant need to grow. It's called sanctification, We need to continue to learn and grow and develop. And Ian actually had said, a mature disciple grows in the gospel with others. Meaning, we need other people to grow in the gospel. Our growth in Jesus is a community project. And then last week, Michael talked about everyday missionaries. Kind of helping us understand that you don't need to be some sort of like special forces task force to make much of Jesus with your life. We looked at Peter and John in the book of Acts, and they were described as everyday, everyday, ordinary, common men who had been with Jesus, right? The only special thing about them was that they had been with Jesus. And so his, his big idea, his takeaway for us was boldness to speak of Jesus overflows from spending time with Jesus. And I don't know if you know this about me. My background, actually, my undergrad was in kinesiology and health exercise science. I worked a couple years as a personal trainer, and I look at these first two weeks, and I see, like, workout plan all over it, right? Like, if you want to grow in your walk with Jesus, here's your workout plan, all right? Read your Bible. Spend time with Jesus. Like, sit at his feet. Come on a Sunday morning. Worship. Pray. Share the gospel, Like all of these really good things that if you actually began to implement in your life, you would love where you ended up, right? But I actually ended up quitting personal training for one reason, actually, one client in particular. Um, And I'm going to get to tell you about this client. And I actually talked to this person to their face about said issue. So I'm not gossiping. This is great, all right? Here's the deal, okay, personal training became a frustration of mine, because people would pay me 30, approximately $30 an hour to spend time with them two to three days a week, okay, so they're like, hey, I have an issue, my health, and I want you to help me fix it, and I'm like, let's go, let's, let's make it happen. This particular client wanted to go from couch to CrossFit, all right, And if you've done CrossFit, we already know that you do CrossFit, okay? You don't have to raise your hand. We've heard about it all week. We see it on your social media. You can be quiet, okay? Um, But the point is, this gal went from saying, like, I don't work out, and I want to do one of the most extreme forms of fitness possible. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I'm going to do three sessions a week with you. And I'm like, oh, man, okay? So... Meet with this client over the course of a couple months and they eventually say, Hey, I'm not seeing any change in in my life. And I was like, well, first off, that's not true. I think we're measuring on the wrong matrix. But also, we have three hours a week together. Like, that leaves 165 hours left on the table. So maybe we should be talking less about how our three hours a week are going and more about how the other 165 hours are going. <laughs> like, what are you eating? How are you resting? etc. And if we are honest with ourselves, Veritas, I think that we can actually begin to approach Christianity a lot like this personal training client, right? 60 to 90 minutes, two to three times a week. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's like, man, yes, I go to church. I go to connection group. I serve on a Wednesday night. Yes, I'm, you know, putting forth time and effort to try and read my Bible, but if we're honest, many of us feel frustrated, right? We feel frustrated about our progress. We feel frustrated about maybe our joy, like how close we feel to Jesus. We're marked more by complaining than we are by rejoicing. And maybe if that's not you, another frustration is we're not seeing God change the people around us the way that we'd like to, right? I read the book of Acts and I'm like, wow. Thousands of people are being saved, like people are being bold and courageous for Jesus, and thousands of people are giving their lives to Christ. And we're sitting there like, man, I wish I could see something like that. And I think maybe, just maybe, we're missing what this is all about, okay? That Christianity is not meant to just be a two to three times a week thing. It's not meant to be a workout plan, and what we're missing is glorifying God, okay? This, this overarching princi- principle that we're going to talk about today, glorifying God. And I just want to tell you really quickly what it means to glorify God. Because God, in his very essence, is glorious. So it's not like we're giving something to God that he is lacking without us, okay? To glorify God is to acknowledge God's greatness, his beauty, his perfection, and give him honor by praising and worshiping him. It's to look at who God is and what he's done and saying, that is exactly who you are, God, and I want to praise you with all that is within me. And when we think about it from like a health and fitness standpoint, it's like, oh yeah, I want to be healthy, but I can't spend a hundred hours in the gym. And you might be sitting here like, man, I want to grow in my worship of Jesus, but I can't spend a hundred hours at the church. And I'm here to tell you, I don't want you to spend 100 hours at the church, okay? That's not the point. The point is that there is actually a lot more to life and a lot more to glorifying God than Christian activity. And so the question that we're asking is, if glorifying God is not just more Christian activity, then what is it? How do we begin to glorify God with all of our lives? That's where we're going. We're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you have a physical Bible, go ahead and open it up. Uh, We'll have verses on the screen for you as well. But because we're jumping into chapter 10 of this letter, I want to fill you in kind of on what's going on. So Paul, an apostle and church planter, has planted this church in Corinth. starts off with a bang. Gospel is exploding in this pagan city. But then he goes, he leaves Corinth to plant more churches, and he receives a report several years later that this church has gone sideways. Like, this church that was meant to impact the pagan culture around them was not influencing the world. Rather, they were being influenced by the world. Right? Corinth was like the Vegas of their day. To act like a Corinthian was to be marked by immorality, adultery, etc., And so Paul is writing to this church, trying to get them to shape up, honestly. Trying to say, hey, you need to understand who this God is and what he's calling you to. And though in the coming chapters he's about to address issues within the, the, you know, what we know today as the Sunday gathering, because they have issues there too, he's actually been spending the opening chapters talking more about the Monday to Saturday issues. So it's not that there weren't issues within the Sunday morning gathering. He's trying to say, I want to talk about the stuff that's going on all throughout your week in ordinary life. And so I think Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually has answers for us today. As we answer this question, how do we glorify God with all of our lives? Okay, read with me. First two verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 23. It says, all things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So you might notice here, all things are lawful is put in quotes, quotations. And what Paul is doing is he's taking a common quotation from Corinthian culture. This culture that made much of freedom. And amongst the elite was kind of like jabbing at those who were in slavery. It's like, hey, we're free. We can do whatever we want. Freedom wins. Freedom reigns all the time. And though we don't live in Corinth, we do live in the U.S. of A. Right? And this my freedom, my rights thing is not just a Corinthian problem. We see it in our country. Right? These are my rights. These are my freedoms. These are my decisions, this is my life, these are my choices, and nobody is going to tell me what to do. We're not going to let people infringe upon our rights, because we are American, (laughs) right? But then, I think to make matters more confusing, like, I read a verse like Galatians 5, 1, where Paul is writing, and he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free, And so Christianity seems to be pro-freedom. It's like, heck yeah, give me more freedom. I'm all about it. I want freedom. But this personal freedom here is apparently not how you and me oftentimes apply it. Paul is trying to say, hey, yes, you have freedom in Jesus. You have freedom from measuring up and meeting standards because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, your freedom is not just for you. He's trying to say, your freedom is meant to actually pursue the good of other people. So yes, all things are lawful. Like, yes, you're free to do certain things. But should you? That's kind of the question he's asking. Like, can you? Sure. Should you? Man, that's a deeper question. And as I think about my personal training client, it's like, can you go home after the gym and eat an entire Casey's breakfast pizza? Yeah, you can. Should you? Probably not, right? Like, probably not gonna help your cause. But the reality is, this like self centered bend just comes naturally to us. Right? We're not asking the question, should I? because we don't want anybody else or anything else to tell us what to do. This is mine, right? I have two toddlers, a two-year-old and a one-year-old. Their, their favorite word, if not no, is mine, right? Like sitting there with a cup of coffee, mine. I'm like, you don't need coffee. You have more energy than I can stand, right? This is not yours. And we are not that much different than my kids. Mine, I just can't help but think about how much I care about my comfort, my convenience, my schedule, right? Get a weekend free, and it's like, you know, someone else has a physical need they need help with, and sometimes the first thing that comes to mind is like, man, but this is my weekend off, right? You've had a long week of work, and you have a night free. Are you thinking, who can we have over for dinner, You're thinking, no, I'm going to order delivery, and I'm going to sit on my couch, and I'm not going to do a thing. (laughs) Or making matters maybe a little bit more interesting. It's like, you have an opinion, and you're in a group setting. And one thing you could do is you could say it, because it's your opinion, and, god darn it, you know you're right. (laughs) But maybe you're actually not supposed to say it so that you can honor somebody this crazy idea of understanding personal use of freedom for the sake of other people. Now, I actually think many of us are starting to kind of get this, like, can I versus should I? And it's come to my knowledge, working with college students, having people in our home, if you're gonna host somebody for a meal anymore, you have to ask, do you have any dietary restrictions, right? Like, okay, I swear, Half of this room, you're now gluten-free, dairy-free, whatever. I'm not here to make fun of you. I'm just here to say, you make having you over way more difficult, okay? (laughs) It's just true. But all of you that are like, yes, I'm gluten-free or I'm dairy-free, I think the reality is, is like, can you eat gluten? Can you eat dairy? Well, sure, you can, but should you? Is it good for building up? If anything, it's good for emptying out, right? Like, you're like, there's no, there's no way, like, can I eat this? Yes, but should I? Absolutely not, so I'm going to avoid it. You actually understand this concept, and so what Paul is writing about here are these, like, gray issues, and I think we have a lot of them in our culture. I mean, personally, just taking a few moments to think through, like, should I post on social media? Should I post my opinion on social media? Can you? Yes. Should you? Maybe not. Can I hit the town with my coworkers and do the bar crawl? Can you? Yeah. Should you? I don't know. Can I spend significant amount of time with somebody of the opposite gender that is not my spouse? can you? Sure. Should you? Maybe a more challenging question. And the issue that Paul is actually writing about to the church in Corinth is this idea of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. So in Corinth, these people would go to a meat market, like, you know, they're going to get the best steaks like we would from Fairway or wherever you buy meat, right? And they're going here, and what is not marked is where this meat came from. So some of the meat, it's known in their culture, like had previously been slaughtered as a sacrifice to a false god. And some of it was just naturally butchered for the sake of eating a good steak. Can I get an amen? It's like, heck yeah, eat more steak, come on. But there's actually this division amongst Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians about how do we handle this? Because the Jewish Christians come from this hyper-religious background that says, if we go to the meat market, we are not moving towards meat at all. Because if there's a chance that this has been offered to an idol, we don't want to be in sin. And then the Gentile Christians, on the other hand, are saying like, guys, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he set us free. Let's stop worrying about all the rules. Let's just eat a good steak. And I think in this room, like, as we look at situations like that, we're prone to pick a camp. Like, Can I? Should I? And man, I could probably split split this room in half on these issues and we'd be divided. But Paul actually writes to bring a sense of unity to these disputes. Read with me. Here's what he says. Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner... And you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks?" So he's talking through two different situations or circumstances, okay? The first is, you as a Corinthian are going to the meat market. And what he's saying is, hey, who did this cow belong to? God, right? The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. If it's not marked, don't worry about it. Like, this piece of meat has belonged to God, does belong to God, and you can eat it and give thanks to God. Like, go home and enjoy that steak, and don't worry about where it came from. Is what he's saying. But, there's the second situation, right? Someone that doesn't follow Jesus, someone that doesn't claim Christianity, invites you over to their home. And this is not the point of the text, but I think it's a question to ask, like, why are we not getting invited into more people's homes? Or why are we not inviting more non-believers to our homes? Like, if Jesus sat and ate with sinners, I'm just saying, like, this should challenge us a little bit. It's like, assuming you're getting invited into the home of a non-believer and you're eating a meal with them. The text says, if they don't bring up where the meat came from, do the same thing. Eat that steak, right? It belongs to God It's good, and you can taste and see that the Lord is good, and you can taste and see that that steak is amazing, and you can give thanks, all right? But there's actually this issue with context, right? Like, okay, but if this person now tells you, hey, enjoy this steak. It was offered to Osiris this morning. You're actually called to not eat, the steak. And you might be thinking, well, doesn't the same principle apply? Doesn't the steak still belong to God? Like, can't I still eat with thanksgiving? And he's jumping back up. He's saying, is this good for the person that you're eating in front of? Is this good for their conscience? Because if you choose to partake now of eating the steak that has been offered to an idol, what you are now telling that non-believer is, you believe that other gods exist too. And so, the question is not, can I, but should I? And so, as I look at this text, I initially think, man, I think glorifying God can be pretty easy. If all it means is I'm a people pleaser, I think I got that down. Some of y'all are with me. You got to confess that to the Lord, right? But this is actually not about people pleasing, okay? It's about so much more than that. We have to keep reading. Here's what Paul says. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is amazing, okay? This issue of like, can I or should I? Like, what does it mean as I enter into the gray areas of culture? Paul is actually saying, we are given this divine opportunity, okay? That you can bring glory to God. That you can ascribe worth and value and praise and honor unto him. But at the same time, here's what you can also do. You can give an offense to people, Maybe your translation says, do not be a stumbling block, or do not lead other people astray. He's actually saying, one of the best things you can ever do with your entire life is give glory to God in everything, in your eating, in your drinking, in your answering the phone at work, in your driving. You can glorify God in everything. You can worship Jesus in everything, but also... You live in a world that has, has eyes on you. And if you are saying, I am a Christian, I am a Christ follower, people are looking at your life, and you may actually give them a reason to say, I do not want to follow their God. That is terrifying. Okay, That should rightly humble us and say, wow, my actions matter. If I can do something as great as bring glory to God... And I can do something as terrible as lead people astray. What I do matters in all of life. And I actually love here, when he talks about doing good for neighbor in verse 24, he actually follows that up here in in this verse here, where he says in verse 33, that they may be saved. Okay, the good of our neighbors is that they might be saved. That they might encounter the living God who has come, lived, died, and risen again to restore their soul. That is what we are getting invited into. That we would glorify God, that we would get a front row seat to show people how big and beautiful and merciful and amazing our God is. That they might know him. This is ridiculous, okay? This is a crazy, crazy, crazy command. If you know anything about your own self, if you know where you've come from, if you know what you've done, even in the last week, let alone the last 5, 10, 15 years, to think, wow, it's actually an opportunity for me to glorify God and to help other people experience Him? No way. This can't belong to me. Right? I, I can't help but think of Romans 1 which tells your story and tells my story. Starting in verse 20, it says, For His, God, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, you can say there, namely His glory, has been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, including you and me, created in God's image, so that they, or we, are without excuse For although they, or we, knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is our story. Okay, Genesis 1 which we're going to be covering here in the coming weeks, you were created in the image of God. You were made to bask in the glory of your creator. But the problem is, you can't flip but more than two pages in your Bible and understand, you traded that. You traded away the glory of God so that you could glory in far lesser things. Because Adam and Eve's story is my story. And Adam and Eve's story is your story, that God would say, hey, come enjoy my glory. And you're like, no, thank you. I'd rather live for myself. I'd rather pursue my own comfort and my own cause because, Jesus, apparently you're not big enough. You're not beautiful enough because these other things win. And you would think that's like, man, game over, right? Like God is going to stay in heaven with his glory. He's going to stay distant from us. And that doesn't mean he's any less glorious, right? He's still perfect. He's still beautiful. He's still amazing. But the good news is, veritas, Jesus did not leave us separated from the glory of God. Jesus steps down from glory, right? Steps down from heaven, puts on flesh. Philippians 2 would tell us that he takes on human flesh, though he in his very nature is God, becomes a servant, He doesn't lord his freedom over his created people. No, he surrenders his freedom. He becomes obedient to the Father and he puts on flesh, lives the life you couldn't and dies the death you deserve. He is separated from his Father who he has existed with eternally so that you're not left separated from the glory of God because he doesn't just die, he rises again. And in his resurrection, Jesus says, hey, come back to glory. You get to glorify God. You get to be reconciled unto your creator. This is amazing, right? And he wants to take people like you and me, broken, sinful, messy people, and invite us into the most amazing thing we could ever be a part of, which is bringing glory unto God. I love in 1 Corinthians 1, he actually opens by saying, this is who God chooses. This is who God chooses to use, okay? He uses the weak. He uses the foolish. He uses those who are lowly and despised. Why? Why does he do that? So that we would boast in the Lord so that when we look at the person and work of Jesus Christ as we understand the gospel we can say there is no other thing to give glory to but Jesus Christ the god of the universe he alone deserves my worship and my praise this is the glory of god look at jesus and so 1 Corinthians 10 looking at you know these disputable matters these gray areas how do we glorify god in all of life, the answer is this. We glorify God by making all of life all about the gospel. All of life, all about the gospel. Another way you can say this is glorifying God is not a workout plan, but a way of life. This is not your workout plan. You are not here on a Sunday morning to experience a personal trainer. Okay? You are here to encounter the living God who is going to leave with you and be with you all week long. The Spirit of God who longs to dwell in those who would say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He wants to be near to you so that you would encounter him, experience him, and yes, reveal him to a watching world this week in everything that you do. I love the language here in 1 Corinthians, right? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Yes, read your Bible to the glory of God. Yes, share the gospel to the glory of God. But also, answer phones to the glory of God. Sweep floors to the glory of God. Do dishes to the glory of God. Parent your kids to the glory of God. Obey your parents to the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Do your homework to the glory of God. All of life is actually an opportunity for you to worship and praise and ascribe worth to God. All of it. And so I think it's important here that we, we walk away with really a couple takeaways. The first is God alone is worthy to receive glory. As we look at Jesus, he is actually the motivation here for this command. So I, sometimes I, I dislike chapters and verses in the Bible because it wasn't initially written that way. It was written as a letter. It's meant to be read cohesively And in 1 Corinthians 11 1, Paul's entire motivation, it says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ is his motivation. Christ is his power to obey this crazy call to bring glory to God. It's actually rooted in the person and work of Christ, and so we need to step one, repent of giving glory to far less glorious things. Like, Whether you have, you know, made an idol out of your comfort, your career path, your retirement plan, whatever it is for you, that you would say, that's not worthy to be given glory. There is one who deserves glory. His name is Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior and I want to live all of life for all of this gospel that he has taken a broken, sinful, jacked-up person like me and has made me new. So I think the first thing that this beckons us to do is just get on our face and repent and actually seek this God that we claim to love, okay? But really practically, I just want to give you guys two questions to ask as you go about your week, right? If I say, hey, I want to make all of life all about the gospel, That means I want you to take everything you do, whether it's in word or thought or deed, and ask two questions. I think if we got in the rhythm of asking these two questions, it would actually impact how we effectively glorify God. The first question is this. What does the gospel say about this? So your situation, your thought, what you're about to do, what does the gospel say about this? Another way you can think of it is, The gospel has come to me. How does this help me worship or reflect that I glorify God? What does the gospel say about this? But then question number two is, what does this say about the gospel? Meaning the gospel has not just come to you, but the gospel is meant to pass through you. And so not just how does this help me experience the loving kindness of God, but how does this show the loving kindness of God to those around me? And if we would begin to ask those two questions, Veritas, we would actually love where we end up as a church. Okay, to fail to do this is to end up much like this Corinthian church that Paul is writing to. They are arrogant, proud, boasting in themselves, worshiping idols, adulterers, far from God, experiencing very little of his power. But the exact opposite is just standing like right in front of us in the person work of Jesus Christ who has said, yes, this is all about me. It's all about my glory. If you would be faithful to just respond, you can sit back and watch me do amazing things, okay? Because the opposite of a proud, arrogant church that has no power of God is a humble, dependent, needy church that makes much of the glory of God. And I want to pray that for us this morning, okay? So if you would, bow your heads. I want to pray that God would humble us this morning to be a church that glorifies him in all that we do. So Father, we come and we confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. That we are broken people that have settled for far less glorious things that we have become the idol worshipers. But God, that that didn't surprise you or throw you off, but it actually helped feed into this magnificent plan that you had from eternity past, that you would send Jesus in glory to put on flesh, to live, to die, to rise again, that we might be restored unto glory. Jesus, that we might give you the glory that you have rightly deserved from the very beginning. And so, God, I ask this morning that you would humble Veritas Church, that we would not get so caught up in doing the right things, trying to get people to glory in how good we are or things that we've done, and we wouldn't be about people-pleasing or people thinking highly of us, but that we would actually be about God-pleasing and people thinking much of you. Jesus, because you alone are worthy of our glory. You alone deserve to be worshipped and praised with all of life. And so help us do that today. Help us do that this week. And help us do that forevermore. We pray in your name. Amen.